0: Aloha Kako, Welcome to a Lay Day edition of the Aloha Friday Conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa. On this day before May Day, normally, we'd be looking forward to the Lay competition at Kapiolani Park. In the real old days, we'd be making Lay for the Kazimero's big concert at the Shell. Today, in 2021, it's at least high time to learn more about Lay. Because since 1928, when poet Don Blanding came up with the idea, May Day is Lay Day. In Hawaii. Well, let's head to Bukalani on Maui to learn more about Lei from Cody Pueo Pata, Kumu Hula of Halau Hula Okamalama Mahilani. He teaches in Kahului, Kaneohe, and Tokyo. Pata became immersed in hula culture in high school when he joined his father's family on Maui.
1: My experiences in halau were very intense from the get-go. This halau um was Antinona Mahilani Kaluhio Kalani's. She had a, a an advisory board of kupuna five five ladies. Um, all kupuna and the leader of which was Auntie Diane Napua Amadeo. Um, she was a master laymaker, maker. And they were they were all Manaleo, they were all Hawaiian language speakers. Antinona um had a ceremonial halau as well. So we did um, ceremonial practices. And so when I was um, put into this situation, you know, this, these surroundings, that was my my impression of that this is what hula is. This is what Hawaiian language is. And, and for this particular subject, this is what lay um, lay constitutes my first perceptions of lay and their importance and and their utilitarian um, natures and their ceremonial natures and everything in between. That's what is normal to me. It was just what people did, and that's what what I do.
0: Well, we first encountered lei as this decorative element, but you mentioned that lei are functional.
1: Uh, as with most things um, in Hawaiian culture, especially the, the physical um, aspects of Hawaiian culture, we're taught that there was a utilitarian nature for the, as the basis of most of these things. And so although lay today are perceived and worn for the aesthetic, perhaps, um, which could include their fragrance as well, but definitely the visual aesthetic, that's kind of a byproduct of us being separated from the more deep meanings that are that we imbue lay with. And so the functions, perhaps you can imagine lay Poo, which are the the lay that we put on our, our heads, the functional aspect would be visor like, you know, to keep keep um, wind and salt out of our eyes and our faces, or lay upon the shoulders. You know, we there are um, um, representations in pictures, as well as through documentation, where they said they would just rip a banana leaf in half and wear the two halves around their shoulders as a lay. That would obviously be something that would um, protect your skin, protect um, your body from sun and salt and things like that. Another type of utilitarian use would be to organize um, plants. So uh, one of the ways to organize while we're picking is something that we still do to this, that I still do to this day, that I teach my halau and my, my nieces and nephews is um, specifically with, with mamaki. You know, it's a common tea here in, in Hawaii, but when we collect mamaki. Once we gather the the la'u all together, we can then begin to ho'opepe, which is kind of um, roll something over the stems to kind of soften them. And then we we begin to um, braid the stems into a lei. It allows us to take these uh, leaves in the form of a lei out of the forest. And then we um, hang these lay up within our houses in a shady, but uh, well ventilated area. And when we need the love for tea, we just take the, the leaves off of that lay. Oh, must be beautiful,
0: Mama. She's such a beautiful leaf. Gosh,
1: yeah, it is. And then, you know, like um, we have lehua, which, which is a flower, but there's lei hua which means um, lay of hua, which are fruits, basically. And so um, mountain apples, right? Um, we know that. There's a short season for mountain apples. There's a way to string these um, these hua, which are these uh, the fruits of this, and also hang them in a, a well ventilated, sh- shaded area. They dry out like that evenly, and heli hua no kena. That's a that's a, a lei or garland of fruit, not necessarily <laughs> born, but it, it's formed into the lei, right?
0: So the idea of stringing things together. And you were saying also for symbolic reasons
1: almost oh, definitely so the way that the hawaiian cosmos is organized is that um, everything in our natural environment is considered a kinolau or a body form uh, or a physical manifestation of an akua which in english the closest word to come to um Akua is God. But uh, if you take the time to look in the Hawaiian dictionary, you'll see that the word Akua is not limited only to God. It's a it's a broad concept that umbrellas God, but the English word God does not cover the Hawaiian concept of akua.
0: What What else does it cover?
1: So I can kind of distill it down to meaning um, an organized entity that we have be circumspect about it's kind of like universal consciousness or whatever you want to call it uh, is formed of all of these different strands and so the akua are our recognition of the individual strands that form this this large cord of consciousness or the world by being able to identify aspects of these individual strands we're then able to focus intention That's basically how we organize the cosmos from a Hawaiian perspective. And it worked here. It still works here. We're still taught how to do these things. Paying attention to the loina or the protocols that we've been passed.
0: More on loina or protocol associated with lei in a moment. But Kumuhula Kodi Pueopata was saying when he's in Japan or Washington or Poland, he may not have fresh flowers for a lei to give his hosts. He always, however, has this song he can give, Lei Nani, about an affectionate exchange.
2: Puyo, <laughs> are there protocols associated with
0: Lei that maybe even the average person should know about?
1: Sure, I can approach it from my perspective as a Kumuhula that's my most thorough training and Diane was our lay master and Nona knew all the protocols that we do to respect the cycles of hula and as hula practitioners and lay makers we have to know a multiplex of disciplines just to actually create a finished lay that includes, um, knowledge of the land knowledge of the environment where are these specific resources found either naturally or even in my neighborhood we then have to also know how to interact with this particular um, plant each halau, each each person perhaps has their own kaina their own steps of protocol to allow ourselves to introduce ourselves to the plant to talk about the intention and so forth, and so we have to know, not just where this plant is located, but how we approach the plant and then even how we pick the plant and in our hello. The hand that we pick with is different than the hand that we hold with, we have to know how to pick from this this entity to encourage growth, as opposed to stunt its growth. We also have to know the allies and nature of this particular plant so that we're sure to take care of those plants that are surrounding it as well to allow for the maximum growth of this plant. Once we've, we've, we've interacted in that way, we can then say in our style of haku, haku making, we already know that there's going to be 80 to 90 slots that need to be filled when, when we're braiding this lay, 80 to 90 slots. And so if I have a lay material, I want to make a lay that is two materials, I would then be able to pick 40 to 45 of each or whatever combination I'm going to use. So when I approach this area where these plants grow, I will only take as much as I need and probably a, just a few more because we can anticipate also mistakes on the, on the human side when we're, when we're making the lay. If we have chanted or prayed and interacted with this plant in a ceremonial sense, we then treat this plant as if it is the entity that we have, we have addressed. And so we don't put these in the trunk of our car. We don't put them on the floorboard of the car. We put them on the back seat or the front seat. We gather these things and we treat them in a very respectful way. If we have to put them in the refrigerator, we clear the food around it so that people aren't knocking it around. All these little things that we have to pay attention to, right? Most people, when they see a lay, oh, it's just, that's pretty. Then when we're making the lay, we have a focused intention. Is this lay for my grandma? Is this lay for a ceremony? Is this lay for a politician? Or is this lay for a friend? So I am not thinking about this person or this function while I'm making this lay. And we believe that because a major component of all fresh lay is water, which in Hawaiian is wei. And way also means to accrue or accumulate, all of my intention is beginning to accrue, accumulate and concentrate within this lay. When I then complete the lay and, and offer the lay, I'm pretty sure everybody's felt this, that um, there's a moisture that emanates off of the lay, a humidity that, that emanates off of the lay. That is the slow release of the intention that will then surround that person or the place that we're placing this lay. So to us, a lei isn't just something pretty it's also a vessel through which we can transport and offer our intentions they're lei that we really appreciate the scents from right and so lei lulo which are like the lulo are are like fern leis that that as soon as i smell um pala palai, that 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 kind of earthy fresh scent i i'm transported somehow and i turn my head on the other side, when I smell foreign flowers, like a lei, pikake. Pikake, of course, is very strong smelling. So the pikake, the type of jasmine, it has a the type of scent that's called pawa. Now, if that person wearing a lei walks past me and I turn my head, it attracts my attention. That scent is now called onaona. If you look in the in the dictionary, naona means fragrance, but what it actually means is it attracts you. If I turn my head and I go to smell it, uaonaona, it means it's a type of smell that has pulled my attention and made me draw closer to it.
0: Kumuhula Kodi Pueopata describes a subtle scent that actually turns your head. Mokihana is one of those scents. Teresa Bright here with Steve Mai'i, describing the special lay of Kauai, spicy mokihana, with small-leaf maile, the maile lauliili
2: Aloha.
0: The scent of mokehana lingers with the drying pods. (laughs) When will I ever smell that again? Kauai people, you are so lucky. Of course, every major island has its designated lei for May Day celebrations. Oahu, represented by the golden ilima. For kaha'olawe, the gray-green hina hina, or Spanish moss, is wound or, or braided into lei. Red lehua is Hawaii Island's lei flower. Molokai entwines kukui blossoms and leaves. Maui has a specific damask rose, the roselani, or lokelani. Lana'i's lei oa strands are yellow, green, to kind of deep orange. oa that grows on Kalanianole highways, medial strip between Wailai'iki and Ainahaina, is yellow orange. And you can find it sometimes near the freeway on-ramp by university as well. <laughs> you have to find lei materials where you can. And for 2010 lay queen Jamie Kaohulani Adams Detweiler and her ohana, that means starting in their own yard. She had a tray of lico and ferns in front of her when we talked. Detweiler's aunt, Marie McDonald, wrote two seminal books on lay and taught making in Honolulu for many years. Growing your own flowers is a big part of it. That's how it was on Molokai, where Detweiler's dad grew up. Right outside of the kitchen
3: door, my grandmother had a trellis and she grew pakalana on the trellis. So my dad loved running in and out of the door just to smell the pakalana. You know, my grandmother had a, had a flower garden, and my aunts particularly took an interest in that. And that's how they got started in making lays. And my grandmother made lays as, you know, a hobby for friends. Oftentimes my grandmother shared that she would make a lay for Her husband, my grandfather's papale, he was the only telephone man on Molokai back then when they were there. And um, so she just thought, I'll make my husband a lei for his papale. One thing Auntie Marie told us, be sure to teach your children and your grandchildren and have them teach their children and grandchildren. That's part of our family legacy.
0: What flowers did you see around you growing up?
3: We had a huge plumeria tree in our yard. My dad was the green thumb of the family, along with
0: um, some of his brothers.
3: So um, what I would typically, I grew up in Kaneohe. The plumerias were there too. So Auntie Irma and Uncle Walla literally lived down the street. So all I needed to do was hop on my bike after school and go down the road and just hang out with them. That's how I learned.
0: Would they make yeah. lei regularly? How? Why? I mean, tell, tell me how they made it a part of their lives.
3: <laughs> you know, there were occasions such as Kamehameha Day Parade, May Day, you know, May 1st in Hawaii is, is very, very important to our family. And that's another part of our legacy. And, you know, Auntie Irma and Uncle Walla Pomroy, they were frequent um, entrants in the lay contest, uh, as well as Auntie Marie and my cousin Rowan. My cousin, Noilani, and her husband, Paul, many of us,
0: really. Do you have a first lay memory,
3: you personally?
0: I do, actually.
3: You know, Auntie Irma and Auntie Marie both, you know, they were my mentors in this area. And when I was making my first vilile, which is what a lot of people call haku. Haku means to make. Vili means to wind. So that's the ones we normally see on people, which we refer to as haku. It's not wrong, because haku means to make, but in le- making, it's vili. Po'o means your head. Vili, vili, vili le, po'o. le po'o means a head lei, and vili is the style, which means to wind. The leaf of the lehua is called liko, liko. I use things that, you know, like this grows in the yard, and this is called moa. You oh, know, I love that. I was able to get some lehua blossoms today. Do you have a favorite lei? Believe it or not, I I don't know if this is my favorite, but it is one of my favorites, the purple crown flower, because I love the color purple. And it's so simple, but when you you have several strands of them, it reminds me of like pearls. When I was lei queen, the
0: color that I selected was purple. The crown flower with those petals taken off, so it's it's like a little sculpture <laughs> that's lined up in a lay. I just love the simplicity of it, really. And um, you know, the lay for those special occasions are so long they go almost to your knees, and then they'll um, be in tears, right? Talk about yes. that
3: styling. I love that. There's there's an elegance to that. That's oh, yeah. how I would 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 frame it. It, it- all truly reminds me of May Day because, you know, growing up here in Hawaii, you know, I graduated from Castle High School. And every May Day court, the queen had crown flower lei. They also sewed the crown flower into floral wire to make the crown. So if you oh. have seen some of the May Days, they shape the floral wire, but they sew the crown flower on it first and then they shape it you know, to make a crown. And then the queen is wearing layers of crown flower. And sometimes my lay with that too. You know, as lay day approaches, you know, I was just telling my daughter-in-law yesterday, I said, oh, are the kids busy? Because this year it falls on a Saturday. And she said, no, no, they'll they'll all be around. And again, here's another opportunity to sit down with my grandkids. And, you know, four of them are getting ready to move to the mainland. So it's This is an opportunity to share our legacy with them. You know, we talk to them about, you can have your own lay garden. Auntie Marie would say that. She said, you make your own lay garden. You grow your own ferns, your own lehua, your own lay flower. I try to use what I have in the yard first.
0: Laymaker Jamie Kaohulani Adams-Detweiler says, you will be surprised what people grow in their yard in Henderson, Nevada, as well as Kaunakakai and Waimea. Coming up, we'll visit Jamie's cousin, Rowan, another laymaker who now does kapa on Hawaii Island. Here, a rare, intimate version of that layday song by Henry Kapono.
4: Mayday is a layday
2: Garlands of flowers everywhere All of the colors of the rainbow Maidens with blossoms in their hair
5: Flowers that mean we should be happy
2: aside a load of
0: care. All the pageantry of a May Day court with island princesses and escorts and cultural performances has been a major event in Hawaii's public schools, elementary on up. I mean, Farrington normally has an amazing production every year. The city of Honolulu has a long standing lay contest, which this year is kind of online as an unofficial run for the world's longest lay. Makanani Sala is Honolulu's new Executive Director at the Mayor's Office on Culture and the Arts. A former Hawaiian Studies instructor at Winberg Community College, the first thing Sala did was offer free Hawaiian language basics for city employees. Over a hundred people jumped at that chance. I had to ask Makanani Sala what else she has planned.
6: For me, I always think like arts and culture is a very you know familiar yet sort of abstract concept, right? So I had a plan that really involves around making, um, at least in terms of our resources, I wanted to do less programming on our part and more galvanizing community because there's so much good work being done already. How do we assure that our resources are going to amplify what people already do and help them to connect in ways that maybe they don't know?
0: What did you pitch?
6: People put us on the periphery, right? We're like the frosting, right? So arts is nice, but only when you have extra money. Culture is nice when you have extra money on the side to spend. But like my husband, Aaron, and I are always discussing, if tourism is our major industry, then culture and art is central to what we do. Not just for tourists, but for, you know, for our lives or for our livelihood to create opportunities. Everything is intertwined into culture and art. Because as we know, art is life, you know, life is art.
0: It's one thing to provide ukulele class, you know, which is so loved and appreciated. We cannot do without it, but it's another thing to try to say, how do we develop creatives, creative thinking, uh, creative opportunities? You know, the other end of it, right?
6: Well, I absolutely think so. And I think there are many people in the art circle moving towards it. Honolulu really being a center, like an art center for all of the Pacific, as I think we should be we have all of the fine arts, we have all of these really accomplished artists practicing here in Honolulu, but we also have things that no one else has, right? We're the center of the Pacific. We are a gateway to Asia. We are in Oceania, all of these native arts. So for me, I think that is what makes us really special and gives us a place to become really the the preeminent place that can touch all of these things in a wide way and do them really well.
0: Do you see downtown and Chinatown? How do you see them playing into this uh, revitalization of art and culture that could be coming up?
7: Oh my gosh, I think it's central. I think you know it's pretty central to the administration's priorities to revitalize Chinatown. And what my office has been working on is helping to think about okay, once infrastructure is fixed, once we you know help to deal with homelessness and houselessness and crime and all the issues that have been brought up by Chinatown businesses. How do we move forward from there? How do we get people back into Chinatown? Patronizing all the arts, the restaurants, the bars, the theater. There are so many different places uh, for us to go. So one of the ideas actually came from Sandy Pole, who I know you know, which was the heart District, right? So heritage, entertainment, arts, restaurant, and theater. The city as a whole loves this idea because it's really a wraparound idea. It's not just about the arts district. Of course, arts is central, but restaurants, Everything is sort of mutually working together to benefit Chinatown as a whole. Um, So I think arts is going to play a huge role in the revitalization of Chinatown.
0: I just wonder how. I mean, what are you going to do? Fund street paintings, maybe uh, help to fund outdoor events. There are so many city properties down there that if they got filled with people doing things, it would really pick up the neighborhood.
6: (laughs) I I think you hit it right on the head. So I think the
0: first would be wayfinding.
7: So you wanna create distinct and sort of vis- visible boundaries for the Chinatown district, right? So that might be logo rebranding, street art. Obviously we are uh, sort of limited in what we could do in terms of street art because of the historic buildings, but sidewalk art, lab post banners. So we're thinking about it in that way, just improving wayfinding. Second is gonna be technological updates because technology already exists, right? Things like Yelp and so-and-so, but can we do one specifically for Chinatown in Honolulu, which would say, okay, here's all the restaurants with reservations at this time. Click it. He said, this is the link to all of the shows that are playing on Saturday. And of course, like you said, it's really going to come around events. What I'm trying to sell is a monthly walkable event, something people can count on very akin to like the KCC farmer's market. Whether or not it's a farmer's market, I don't know. But just something that people know every Sunday from 9 to 12, it's a walkable Chinatown. Maybe it's a market. Maybe it's a food truck thing. Family-friendly
0: um, thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something
7: friendly. That's just, you know, it creates community. When I bring up this uh, with this topic, people get stuck a little bit on, of course, homelessness, houselessness, and crime. But as we start to deal with that, we also want to ramp up. So I don't think we can wait to ramp up because I think bringing people back in is going to be really important.
0: That was Makanani Salah. Executive Director of the Mayor's Office on Culture and the Arts here in Honolulu. Next, we'll head to Waimea, Hawaii Island for a visit with a farmer and kapa maker.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkanen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at Inkanen.com.
0: mentioned Rowan Hufford a few minutes ago. Hufford's mother, Marie McDonald, helped revive two essential Hawaiian arts, laymaking and the making of kapa, a cloth made from the wauke plant, a type of mulberry. Over the years, at her vegetable farm in Waimea, Hufford's been learning the seasonality of kapa. It's taken years to sink into the rhythm of these plants, and the process, Hufford says, draws her closer to the earth and to an ohana, which has sprung up around kapa making.
4: When the cherry blossoms come out, it's the beginning of spring here. Uh, Because shortly after the cherry blossoms will be the peach. The day length starts to get, it gets longer, and so you have more light. Well, for us, for our vegetables, you know, they're going to, they'll have more growing light. If you think about What happens when you put a seed in the ground and it responds to the warmth of the ground and moisture? And it also is coming up through the ground and responding to light. So, the more light hours, the seed will burst open and the leaves will come up. And so, that's what we deal in. We deal in leaves, spinach leaves, lettuce leaves. Um, baby salad greens, <laughs> you know that's
0: right. There's toothsome young things.
4: Now, the day length is important to me as a couple maker, um, and I'm I'm just figuring this out. Wauke responds to day length, so from November to the beginning of June, my wauke is is pretty much dormant, and it's dormant in that I can't harvest it. The part that I want to use is the inner bark. So I have to wait till the plant is responding to the day length. And what happens when it responds to day length? The sap starts to run in the tree. In other words, I'm sure you heard in biology, the xylem and the phloem. That's the vascular system of the plant. Right, how fluids are carried up and down the plant. Roots pull up the the nutrients from the soil and and the moisture from the soil. The leaves gather energy from the sun. And when the leaves are gathering energy from the sun, all the fluids are going up and down and the plant is growing, right? So from the vegetable part of our operation, if the day length is getting longer, then those leaves are coming up quicker. It's responding to all the elements and we can harvest and make a living. The same thing happens with the welkie. I remember um, my mother making us go out and cut the wauke down, and then we just struggled to get it off. And then after a while, it dawned on us: if there's no leaves on the plant, we can't get it off. But if there's leaves on the plant, the sap is moving up and down, and then we can get it off. Rowan, you're saying she had to recreate the process for making exactly it exactly. Like Malia Solomon, she read about how other people in the Pacific make tapa. She read what she could find about them. She tried to find people who knew about that. When you think about it, there weren't many people left who were interested in doing this. It was so, it's such an arduous thing. You know, you have to grow the plant material. You have to wait about you know, 12 to 18 months before it's mature enough to harvest it. It's taxing on your water supply because it likes full sun. It doesn't like wind. It likes lots of water, which is why it was grown around the low E and mm. t- tended at the same time as they tended food because it was as important as food. Did it every had- family have to make it themselves? What happened was men grew the food. They also probably tended the, the Wauke, but women beat kappa. And they would gather in groups, forming some people have called them guilds, the wauke. They grew it, they processed it, they you know, stripped it, they beat it together, and all the while they're having conversation. There's a, a great camaraderie and community spirit. And even now, in the groups that are forming. There's a couple of groups of Maui. There's, you know, the ladies that meet with me, groups on Oahu too. You end up saying, "Oh, and who is your mother? And what's your your main concern in life? And how do you feel about blah 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 blah?" There's a certain bonding that takes place, and then when they start decorating it and gaining mastery over the plants that give color how do you get the color to stay and how do you extract it from this root or that leaf and and then you start making beautiful tools to make images on it and this is the most rewarding part for me people see that they can create something beautiful where they thought oh i'm only going to grow the waukee i don't you know i'm in, i'm interested in that part in plant conservation or whatever and then they see that they can beat this fiber out, and it's like gauze and then they put color on it and it goes wow that's so beautiful oh. and and they feel so much satisfaction and and that's why I do it.
0: <laughs> Kappa artist Rowan Hufford See her work at American Savings Bank by appointment with the Loe Gallery's curator Michelle Uchiyama. We'll post Michelle's contacts with this story.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminals to continue serving Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com.
0: Also on view now, at the UH Art Department's Commons Gallery, Eya Kikumu, Nanea Lum's Master of Fine Arts thesis show. In past paintings, Lum explored Western conventions with a fresh local sensibility. For this, her master's thesis show, Lum says she wanted to use the Western art practice of painting to draw closer to place, to the aina, to specifically Manoa Valley. That's where we met along Va'aloa Stream, Lum devised protocols using canvas and pigments that left marks on her canvas over time.
8: I start by being um, in ceremony. Like, I have to realize that ceremony starts way before maybe the initial interaction. It starts in your mind. And I prepare myself by knowing that I'm going to be um, growing with the moon. So building this, this um, ahu and ahu is a shrine, building a shrine with the pohaku in Manoa, with the the pohaku rocks, growing a ahu in the space of stream and engaging with that. So entering the stream and collecting rocks from in that stream and, and placing them on top of an altar. Um, so when I want to document or record the, that process, I um, put a canvas first on the ground. And that opens the ceremony. And I um, do some offerings and some oli and really like ex- allow the, the water to be with me for a time. And then I start stacking the rocks And I do this over the course of about three weeks. Like, start on the um, beginning moon, Hoaka moon, and then go to Hoku moon and Mahealani. And during the fullest part of the moon, I take all the rocks away and close the ceremony with the Pohaku and take the canvas up from underneath the ahu and fold it up gently and take it back to my studio and dry it in the sun. And from there, the canvas is attached to other um, fixed layers of canvas. And um, then the work is, is kind of considered in its composition and it's, it's a work of studio art. <laughs> <laughs> you take it from there. Yeah. What I'm really looking for is this methodology for my sovereignty here in, in Hawaii how does my practice relate to decolonization? Well, it's through really like finding these methodologies of making and making meaning especially. Through being at the university, I'm learning the way to get the place names, to reclaim the knowledge of this place in in a really authentic way. And so, the mo'olelo that I started to gather from um, research in Hamilton Library and being on UH campus, I was gathering the place names and the many like stories and chants and oli about Manoa and giving um, honor to Manoa, and so I I was learning by like conceptually navigating what I where I am and and what it means to me. So you physically
0: came here and then you were also using, you know, university intellectual resources to add to the background, the context of this place. Yeah. Uh, Why? What, 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 what do you gain from that?
8: Hmm. Well, I was actually doing a conference the year that I, um, entered into the UH, the, the master's program in art. I did the conference called um, "Mapping Indigenous Geographies," hosted by American Studies, I believe. So that's really where all of this like research kind of started. Was asking my art practice like what mapping is to me because what I'm looking at them for is trying to reclaim the Hawaiian language of that place so that I take that olelo and that olelo Hawai'i and have my own experience in the land and and learn in that way. The next part of this way of working is to go to new Ahupua'a or go to like the next place or gather place names and histories of somewhere else. And I'm lucky that I've discovered this kind of way of working because I'm really happy doing it. And I think it shows that I'm really happy doing it. And the community like really wants to engage in this way too. And, and for me, the feedback has been that, I wanna be in that stream with you. like I wanna go and touch that water. Aren't we so lucky to like kind of have that with each other?
0: <laughs> You're growing our affection for the place. Yeah. And out of that, a lot can spring.
8: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Nane Lum, Master of Fine Arts, U.H. Manola. Her works are on view at the U.H. Commons Gallery through May 9th. You can find work by Nane Lum, Jenna Macy, and Ava Federoff, all newly minted MFAs, online. We'll post a link with this story. ¶¶
5: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring outdoor pop-up installations across the museum. Now on view, HonoluluMuseum.org. Hey, this is Peter Sagal, host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, with a special invitation just for you. Join me on Saturday, May 8th at 10 a.m. for an HPR members-only event. I will reveal all the scandalous secrets of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. That'll take about a minute, and we'll do a Q&A where I'll answer all of your burning questions. It's a virtual event, and I do hope to see you there on my screen.
8: Don't wait, wait. Get your
7: tickets today at HPRTickets.org.
5: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Chaminade University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company.
0: Saturday, May 1st, is also International Workers' Day. That's a holiday in many countries. Tomorrow, in Honolulu, the Hawaii Workers' Center will celebrate its first anniversary with a rally and march for fairness. If it's anything like the rally at the Capitol a few weeks ago, the turnout could be surprising. Let's meet two Workers' Center board members behind this new effort, Sergio Alcabilia and Mary Oakes, I'm a, an
9: organizer uh, by profession. Yeah, I've worked on many, many things over the years. No I mean, I'm older, so I've worked on everything from affordable housing, but a lot of work on immigration and a lot of work on low-wage workers' rights. And I work still as a consultant. I have a number of clients who are worker centers all over the mainland. In the United States, there's about 200 of them, roughly. And when, when folks here were saying, we need we need a worker center in Hawaii, we investigated and said, oh yeah, <laughs> we really do.
10: Yeah, For me, I, I'm a, a, an attorney by training. Um, I work for a nonprofit um, public interest law firm. I have two young kids, and then for me, what brought me on initially from my experience uh, from a working class immigrant family, now as a young family with two kids, trying to make it here in Hawaii, those are kind of the things that initially uh, brought me To Hawaii Worker Center, and then it's just it's yeah it's been a pleasure working with everyone.
9: I also grew up in a a working class family, and um, actually, when my father died, we really slipped into deep poverty. And so I've had jobs that were going to go nowhere, that were really hard, and had terrible conditions. And I guess I've just always had in me that sense of you know workers need a voice, we need respect. Uh Seeing. Injustices and and wanting to do something about it, starting with my own
0: family, like like Sergio. Mm -hmm. And in your experience, have you seen conditions change? If you
9: look at what the labor movement as a whole has achieved since the 20s and 30s, I mean, we had child labor back then. Now, you know, we have laws right now, minimum wage. There are things that didn't exist because workers came together and organized. So we're hoping to continue that tradition there are new issues. Many workers experience wage theft, no paid breaks here in Hawaii. We have workers earning 10 10 an hour. Having
10: a minimum wage of 10 10 just doesn't make any sense, considering we have one of the highest cost of living, if not the highest cost of living in the country. I mean, it's not those things that we just have to accept and just say it's the price of living in Hawaii or the price of paradise. I mean, those are things that we can advocate for and change. Hawaii's history has shown that in the past as well.
0: Well, I think I just looked at a table showing that a single person in Honolulu would need to make over $27 an hour as a living wage. How do you even start achieving more equitable pay?
10: I mean, the hard part is a lot of young families are leaving. It doesn't make any sense economically to stay here when you know your income is going to go further somewhere else in the mainland. Can we ask for more? Can we ask for better? I think we can. I mean, I think this past year at the legislature, when they were pushing for an increase in minimum wage, you know, unfortunately, the legislators didn't approve it. I mean, those are things that we can advocate for. Otherwise, the only other option is to leave. I know a lot of people, they stay here because of their family ties or because they want to raise their families here. But just economically, the math doesn't make sense.
0: That's what restaurateurs and other, you know, minimum wage businesses say. The economics will not make sense for us if we need to pay a higher minimum wage especially with the COVID pandemic situation. How do you counter that?
9: Well, if you look at studies in other places where they raise the minimum wage, um, in fact, you can look at San Francisco, which is also a very expensive place to live. The Restaurant Association of San Francisco does not oppose raising the minimum wage for tipped workers. There's lots of small businesses that do not oppose raising the wages. We've gone and talked to lots of them. They get it, they get they want their workers to you know, have a stable life and stay here and have some money to spend because they're going to spend it in the community. But we've got to make sure that workers are, are speaking up and they're so busy trying to make a living that it's it's often hard. But they, they are, they are coming together. My prediction is we will get a raise next year. In the minimum wage. Yes. You're saying. And some other mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. I think this year was so awful. Low wage workers are really feeling disrespected. They're going to fight.
10: And I think just the hypocrisy is, I mean, during this whole pandemic, we had our grocery store workers, we were calling them essential workers, making them go to work so we could go shopping, we could have, you know, gas in our car filled, but at the same time, we won't pay them what they deserve. I mean, just the way we were treating our workers just wasn't right.
0: Well, you get a lot of help in this effort from, you know, things like the Alice Report from Aloha United Way (laughs) and those other measures of Mm -hmm. um, economic stability. But you just wonder what forces are arrayed against a worker's center.
9: Deep down what it is, I mean, I actually could share some reports with you, but the United States Chamber of Commerce is very anti organized labor, anti union. And they see workers coming together, even in workers associations, which are not, you know, workers centers are not unions, but because workers are joining together and asking for decent pay and decent conditions as very threatening. And so they're speaking for everyone. They're pushing against these things. They don't want more organized workers and they don't want to spend anything more than they have to.
10: You know, there's a voice for businesses. There's a chamber of commerce and I I get it. They advocate for the interests of businesses, but who's advocating for workers? And I think that's really where the need for Hawaii Worker Center is highlighted. I mean, who's advocating for the gas station attendant? Who's advocating for the person that longs, you know, work. running up your groceries? Yeah. Working at McDonald's. I mean, that's why a why worker center. The question is, who's advocating for our workers? That's why we're needed.
9: And one of the biggest things everybody was so worried about was they weren't getting their unemployment. That what's happening, people losing their housing, living in their cars, racking up debt, interest on debt like Sergio said, just keep lifting up the stories of workers.
10: Things don't change unless you push or you pull it. And I think for us, we respect the hard work that the Department of Labor is trying to, the staff there that they're trying to do. But for us, just making sure that there's accountability to it. I think that's where we could really provide that voice for workers and for those that are going through unemployment right
9: now. And encouraging workers to come forward and come together and speak up. The more that that happens, the more they're empowered to be involved in coming up with the solutions and and making change
10: just seeing the amount of you know power at the capital when we had a when we had a valley recently just to see that groundswell of support I think people realize that you know things need to change in Hawaii we don't have to accept that hey that's just the price of paradise or that's the price of you being an immigrant coming here so you've got to put up with these type of conditions we can do better for me it's a hopeful message that Hawaii worker center brings
0: that's Sergio Alcabilia and Mary Oaks of the Hawaii Workers' Center. The workers' march starts tomorrow, 10 a.m. at Kalihi Valley District Park, rally at 11 at Towers at Kuhio on Linapuni Street. Minimum wage workers aren't the only ones who've concluded that the old normal is not really sustainable. How Hawaii could actually prosper has been the motivating focus for a hui of business and community leaders, policymakers, cultural practitioners, and others who've been meeting since the COVID pandemic began. This is the work of Aina Aloha Economic Futures, AAEF. Circular economies, regenerative businesses, these are some of the ideas in play, and raising the minimum wage is part of the AAEF path forward. Tomorrow, Hawaiian Airlines, the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, Walmart, the City of Honolulu, and others are presenting a late-day concert that will include storytelling about the issues raised by Aina Aloha Economic Futures. The May Day Makai Ka'i Ka'i will stream on local TV and on Facebook Live at 6 p.m. tomorrow. Nahoku Hanohano winners Keao Ho will host a stellar lineup, including Robert Casimero, a link to May Day celebrations of the past. The Brothers Casimero, take us out now with a song about the magnificent lay of Hawaii.
2: Hanno hanno, Hawaii la, Mauna ke han ha
0: about it for this Aloha Friday, getting you in the mood to wear and give a lay. Thanks so much for swinging by today. Don't you want to talk to us? Call the Talkback line. It's 808-792-8217. You can email us if you want, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post comments if you want at all the usual social media sites. We're there. This program is a Kako thing produced by Savannah Harriman Pote, Russell Subiono and Lillian Song. Our theme music right here courtesy of Gypsy 808, I'm Noe Tanigawa. Now Catherine Cruz is going to be back on Monday. She'll be picking up the conversation. Until then, hey, let's wear and share a lei and let's take care of each other, huh? And have a happy Aloha Friday.